From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by cookbait. I'm your host today, Josh Moadera, joined by my two friends I haven't seen in a very long time. Mm. Ryan, Brandon, how are you feeling? Good, how are you doing? Um, New year. I love that we both talk at the same time. That's going to sound great. You can tell we're experienced <laughs> podcasters. Yes. Yeah, I gave you a lot of direction by saying both of your names. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the overall vibe was good. Good things happening. Brandon, do you have anything cool coming up? Um, I do, actually. I just published a piece in OK Player um, on seven predictions for the music industry in 2023. It's very, it's not like one of the stories I've wrote that I'm like sending the link out to my friends, like, yo, check this out, this is so cool. But it's very like um, business language heavy. It's very focused on, you know, the future of the industry from a business perspective. Um, I talk a lot about like the impact of the ongoing Ticketmaster antitrust case, um, the way artists are pivoting away from um, sort of, you know, label baiting to more DIY kind of energy. Um, the way that working conditions for musicians are sort of continuing to trend downhill, the way musicians are going to organize to kind of push back against some of that stuff. Um, so just a lot of like really interesting, you know, pretty research heavy. I spoke to a lot of experts, did a lot of research. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff in that piece. You can check it out on OK Player or um, on my own website with the link in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Amazing. Ryan, I know that this is top of mind for you, so I feel like we should just address it. How are you feeling about today's football match? <laughs> when I said I was fine earlier, <laughs> very much a lie. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm a nervous wreck. My palms are very sweaty. And I think, um, I think I'll be fine, though. I should survive the podcast recording. And that's the only thing that matters. I'll get my file to Charlie at the end of the day. <laughs> for our vividly involved fan base of listeners here at In Search of Sauce. I implore you all to comment whether you support Arsenal or Manchester United, and then take bets on which team you think Ryan supports. (laughs) I'm really excited about today's episode. It made me want to start writing again. Mm. And I think I've said that before when I didn't mean it, but I think I really mean it now. Um... But it's been a while since I've read three things that are like, ah, if this exists in the modern day world, perhaps I can exist in the modern day world. And that feels really exciting. So today we're discussing a number of profiles I'm very excited about. A piece about Questlove, Billy Woods, Ice Spice, lots of different eras, lots of different things to talk about. But let's kick it off with Brandon's piece on Questlove. Absolutely. Yeah. So my my piece is titled The Passion of Questlove. Uh, it is by Jasmine Hughes for the New York Times Magazine. It's actually an October 18th, 2021 piece, um, <clears throat> but it's something I read recently and just absolutely fell in love with pretty much right away. And it's interesting kind of that we're doing three profiles on the pod today because I feel like for the first almost like year of doing In Search of Sauce, like nine out of 10 pieces I brought to the podcast were profiles because that was sort of what I really wanted to do in music journalism. And I've since, you know, really pivoted away from that. 
um, kind of with the more law and public policy and business stuff kind of that we talked about earlier. Um, but this piece really kind of brought me back to home base with like, wow, like this is like powerful, powerful stuff on really, really interesting people. Um, so to kick things off on it, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs because, you know, the lead is always so important. So um, Hughes writes, most Saturday nights from age five to 10, Amir Thompson would go to bed at 8 p.m. only to be woken up a few hours later. When he was three, he had taken a fruit drink commercial too literally. Hey, how about a nice Hawaiian punch? Ended with a fist to his mother's face. So his parents decided to limit his television consumption. But on the weekends, they bent the rules. And around 12.45 a.m. nudged him awake. He would grab his crocheted by grandma blanket and head downstairs where he would switch on the television, wait for it to warm up, and then crank the dial to channel 48 as quietly as he could. Right at 1 a.m., he was greeted by a magical locomotive, chugging along so rhythmically that it almost seemed to dance, flipping gray buildings it passed into psychedelic colors for his regular dose of peace, love, and soul train. Because Soul Train was the only show besides Sesame Street that he was allowed to watch as a child, and because Thompson, who you might better know as Quest Love, grew up into the sort of adult who relies on an extensive knowledge of music to make sense of the world, his childhood memories are impossible to separate from which episode of Soul Train was playing at the time. The two are knotted together so intricately that the archive of the show and the archive of his brain are the same. An afternoon episode of Soul Train was playing Curtis Mayfield, the main ingredient, when a two-year-old Thompson rushed from the bathtub and toddled, still wet, into the living room, where he slipped and fell, his skin making contact with the radiator about 90 seconds into Mayfield's performing Freddy's Dead, right when the horns start crying. For decades, he was branded with a burn in the shape of a train track. The song still sounds sinister to him. So uh, Hughes keeps this, this theme of soul train throughout the story. And this is kind of something that we'll actually find um, similar in like all the profiles we touch on today is that the journalists use, you know, either a personal experience or a story or, or one particular theme um, to kind of run throughout the piece and continue tying that back into um, the character that they're profiling and their personality. And with Quest Love, you know, we, we set up this, this use of Soul Train as a dynamic for how Quest Love has become this human encyclopedia of music knowledge and how that's just such a like overarching, um, powerful aspect of his personality. Um, and they use that as a lens to, to show how like the news peg for this story was the Summer of Soul documentary that Quest Love did. And so they use this dichotomy of Quest Love as this musical encyclopedia through his like experience with, you know, Soul Train and the way he's able to parallel events and times in his life um, to what was playing on Soul Train to make him the perfect person to do this Summer of Soul documentary. And I want to read also here Hughes' description of Quest Love. Um, she says, We were sitting in a short, princely minivan that felt like the cockpit of a spaceship or the physical embodiment of Thompson's brain or both. He was dressed in paint-splattered army green pants, a dashiki, and tricked-out bright blue Crocs. His trademark afro set in two small trans twists kept back from his forehead by a headband. Thompson talks with his whole body, loudly slapping his flat, wide palm to his thigh to punctuate a point, or tapping his forehead to rescue a stuck thought. There was a small pull-out tray in front of him for his laptop which he deployed, regularly fact-checking himself or insisting that he show exactly what he was talking about. This one paragraph really carries, like, the core of, of like, the journalist going, like, what is the, like, how am I going to describe this person to put an image in the reader's head? 
Um, and this is a very, very long piece, but most of that is wrapped into this one paragraph. And it really carries towards, you know, how we reference quest love as this, you know, museum of culture. And that theme really wraps up at the end of the piece here with, let me see which quote I want to read. Um, yeah, the work with the Summer of Soul documentary um, and Hughes comments on how black history is often either erased or disconnected uh, through the wider diaspora and then rounds out the profile very nicely by posing Questlove as this living, breathing encyclopedia of this history that is at risk of being lost or separated. And how as long as there are Questlove or people like Questlove, uh, making sure that that history is not lost because they are the living embodiment of it, um, you know, it will, it will continue to be connected in the future. And the quote I want to end on here is um, Thompson encourages us to imagine a world in which black music history isn't merely consumed, but is venerated and treated like the cultural monument it is, like the way it already exists to him. So what did you guys think of the piece? And I do, I guess, if you want me to open with a question here, um, <clears throat> I wanted to see what you guys thought about, you know, the lead and using Soul Train as a, as a run through through all the story, because it is an interesting sort of writing tactic that things like that are so effective to readers. But then at the same time, if you also think about like how you would describe like a friend or a family member that you're very, very close to, you probably wouldn't pull this like, you know, really cohesive, like narrative kind of thing out. You know, it seems to be a, a method of storytelling um, that specifically applies to like writing or profiling another figure. So I wanted to know kind of your guys' thoughts on like, do you think anything is left out when writers do that? Do you think it leans too much into a writing tactic? Or is it just, you know, very effective um, way of communicating or showing or demonstrating like the the depth of a person? I think that I don't, I don't think it's a tactic. I think it's a style because reading this piece, I write like this. And I think that whether I'm pulling a personal anecdote from my life and my experience of engaging with the music or the thing I'm writing about or describing somebody else's through line, I think that this sort of autobiographical coverage lens is something that I think is really powerful, especially because I would venture to say everything before 2017 there's been a pop culture moment in most people's lives that serves as the backdrop of what informed a lot of things for them. Mm. And so specifically to this piece, if Questlove strongly identifies with Soul Train being this thing that changed his life in the way that it did and informed what he would go on to do with his whole life, it deserves this much space and this much explanation and this much power in the piece. In the same way that things I think I consumed growing up really did inform everything that I did. And so if I were writing about myself or listening to someone describe me that's a close friend or family, I think I would want something like this that's very anchoring. The other thing I think is really important in, in the age of social media is to prevent erasure, we sometimes have to recall things. And so as writers get younger and the people we're covering maybe from a current era, a past era, I think it's really important for us to reference things that people don't Google anymore. They use social media as a search engine. And so if what you're talking about doesn't exist on the search engines they're using, then how many people remember that some of those people were on episodes of Soul Train or remember the year that Questlove played something, right? And I think the piece alludes to that when it talks about the types of music he was 
in tune as a DJ to play for different audiences without making those audiences feel ostracized. Jasmine talks about herself as being relatively young or affiliating with a certain part of the audience in the crowd that might have been listening to oldies. And then they talk a little bit about what an oldie is or isn't. And for a number of us, them franchise boys might have been a little bit of an oldie depending on how old you are whereas for someone else that's like yesterday right and so yeah I think I'll stop there on the answer to your question Ryan what do you think yeah I think I think Jasmine you just hit on something that's like the kind of half-spoken bigger question surrounding the piece sorry which is about what art deserves to be remembered what art deserves to carry on forever can we preserve all the art that has ever existed can everyone's is a space for everyone's experience to carry on forever and the idea of preservation is just all the way through this piece all the way through because that seems like Questlove's main goal in life at the moment is just to collect artifacts of black musical history black american history and preserve them to his best to the best of his abilities and i think that's quite an existential line of business um especially because so much there's so many forces within america that are fighting for black history to be erased and it's not just the uphill struggle of like you say Jashima not everything existing on TikTok not everything existing on on Twitter sometimes I find myself finding looking for something on Twitter instead of Google and I hate myself for it I'm like wait what am I what am I doing why am I doing this this isn't the encyclopedia anymore so um like that's an uphill struggle on its own but when you have um certain states you know taking um things like slavery off the curriculum, taking the civil rights movement off the curriculum. It's a very intentional um, erasing of history. And I think that lead, Brandon, it's um, it's a bold defiance of that. It's like, here is an intricate telling of a specific moment in one person's specific life about a specific scar that only they had watching this specific thing and what they specifically associate it with that shows that only they were allowed to watch. And I think, in general, what the piece is saying beyond just telling us who Questlove is, it's saying that personal experience is important And we need to preserve that. And I think the power of archiving is something that explicitly isn't talked about as a topic in the piece, but that's his way of preserving archival footage, archival memorabilia. And um, when we worked with DJ Rekha not too long ago, they have this incredible studio with thousands of records and posters. And before Summer Stage last year, I found this one poster from Summer Stage 1996 or 7. And it listed all of these iconic South Asian musicians like Abida Praveen and the um, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan and then mm. Sounds by DJ Rekha. And then fast forward several months, I'm, I'm covering something for someone and someone goes, yeah, we're the first people to ever throw a music festival in New York City with South Asian artists. And I was like, what a sad thing that the world we live in has made us rely on falsely calling ourselves first instead of being great because we haven't been given the resources or the knowledge to be great, right? 
And so it's like, how much of that is gate kept through systemic oppression and inaccessibility? And then how much of that in modern day is us being not proactive about doing research about things before we produce products or, or say things in general about culture? So I think this is sort of a really interesting, happy medium of creating media thing, media, I was going to say media properties, but this isn't a media property, creating things like OK Player, like a documentary, like the several books Questlove has created that allow people to not be punished for not knowing, but be given tools to learn, right? To say, OK, you didn't know, and maybe you didn't look it up, but I did. And so here's a way for you to engage with this. And whether that comes in the form of the documentary being promoted on social media so a certain generation can engage with it and is excited about it, but also being written about in long-form profiles where folks that might be reading the New York Times every week are still getting access to it. I think I'm more keen on things like this, where Questlove has shown us a way forward of being like, okay, how do the people that care about preservation and archival and not engaging with erasure create things that allow people to want to learn and not need to hold on to the first or the only or the not researched takes on things. So I think that was really interesting. I also had the immense privilege of attending the Summer of Soul screening last year on June 19th when it came out um, at Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem. And it was the single-handed, most iconic night of my life thus far. <laughs> it's like Gladys Knight, there's Questlove and Joseph Patel, who I'm a huge fan of, as everybody knows. I think that week I brought a piece about the movie to the podcast. Yeah, But that audience was wildly intergenerational and extremely diverse, right? But I remember this woman was sitting behind me, and she said, she, she must have been, I would say maybe over 70. She said, I never thought I would live in an America where Target is sponsoring Black Joy. <laughs> and I, I was like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and so I think to the tune of that, how do you use and hold media and conglomerates responsible in helping not engage in erasure, right? So those are a number of my thoughts. Yeah, and I think, you know, you said something there, too, that's really important to touch on is also how do you use, right? It's not just about archiving. Um, there's there's a part of the Summer in Seoul that talks about, or Summer of Seoul, that talks about how all this footage existed for for years and was just, like, never used. And even uh, Questlove, with his, like, insanely encyclopedic knowledge, has, you know, makes a reference to having seen clips from it and being like, what what is this? You know, like, being able to see it and not being able to tie it to it because the history was separated from the archiving, right? It was it was overlooked, and it takes um, someone like Questlove, who has that kind of love and appreciation, to to sit down and find a way not just to preserve it, but to share it, contextualize it, and make it understood. Um, and you really get the sense too from the writer Jasmine Hughes in this piece that, like, through this profiling of Questlove, she's not just learning about Questlove, but she's learning so much from Questlove. Uh, she refers to him as the kind of person who would pull up a grainy black and white YouTube video that could change your life. Um, Jasmine, you, or Joshma, you mentioned um, earlier about the 
the DJ night that she goes to and how she learns through like the way that Questlove is reading the crowd. And, and she's like, oh, I see what he's doing. Like he's playing the oldies for the people. And then has that moment like, oh shit, like these are my oldies, you know, like the way that he passes that knowledge along. And I wanted to read um, a paragraph description too of that DJ night uh, because the writing here is impeccable. And also like, look at just like the way that these details are picked up in a way that tells you so much about who Questlove is. Uh, so for the last few minutes of the night, he juggled the first two notes of Stevie Wonder's Knocks Me Off My Feet, repeating them in rapid succession so that they started to resemble their most popular sampled use, Old Dirty Bastards, Shimmy Shimmy Ya. He teased the plinky piano notes, playing them on an extended loop, bringing the audience to the brink of explosion, making everyone believe that the beat would continue down the phrase. You could feel ODB's first line, Ooh, baby, I like it raw, crystallizing on people's tongues, ready to be spit out. But at the last second, he did a fake out, letting the Stevie Wonder song play out, a falling action into an ending. Love songs at 2 a.m. mean the party is over. As everyone recalibrated the energy they had dedicated to the promise of erupting, it was suddenly no one knew what to do with their hands. A black man in front of me yelled, I wasn't ready for that. And that, like, not only is the writing there just so clean and crisp, but it really just gives you, like, how much fun that Questlove is having with it. And the way that he knows, like, the impact that, like, the sample and the interpretation and, like, how to bait people into one of them just to switch it up. And, that, and the effect that that has on, on a crowd and his ability to read those kind of things. Yeah, I think that particular section was just, like, Jasmine just showing the fuck off. Like, <laughs> she, her, her writing was unbelievable. I'll quote it a little bit. It was, like, um, she said... Thompson was light and agile, his legs and head on perpetual jockey bounce, barely looking up from his turntable over the several hours he spun, immune to the eyelashes fluttering his way. I just think she does such a great job of capturing how kinetic music performance is, um, not just in the way the music makes people feel, but in the way it's performed, even at a DJ set, at different instruments. It, it, it was really beautiful. I love that, se- I love that sequence. There's this moment where she says, and I'm going to try not to pronounce this word wrong, but music guys are proselytizers with headphones. A decade ago, Thompson was so excited about the release of Beats, Rhymes, and Life, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest, a documentary his friend about his friends that he brought out an entire showing at the old landmark Sunshine Cinema in Manhattan, free for anyone who wanted a ticket. I remember seeing the tweet on my cracked iPod touch and running for the C-train, landing one of the last seats, my own transformation from innocent woman to rudimentary music guy starting to form. And I think just those three lines for me were like, I think I understand myself better as a person because of the way she wrote that. I feel like I'm somewhere between random person existing and music guy. And then I had to Google what the word prose liticizer meant. And it's described as a person who tries to persuade other people to accept a particular religious or political belief, idea, or way of life. And I thought about that. And I was like, if there were a single word to describe perhaps what music journalists do, (laughs) it's that we try to convince people of our belief of an artist, a sound, a way of writing, a way of producing, a way of creating that evangelized us. And that felt really cool. And so I feel like that's what Questlove has done with his entire life and existence. And she's a wildly insane writer. But just that one 
set of two sentences for me was like, oh, she gets it. That's it. That's what we do. You convince people to engage with something that changed your life because you think that it might change theirs. Well put. And if none of you guys have anything else to say specifically about the article, I'm going to wrap up here. First, I'll give you the chance. Ryan, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Go for it. Excellent. Okay, so I wanted to there's, – there's a sentence in this piece that talks about Questlove's childhood um, and how his parents raised him. Um, <clears throat> and the sentence reads, combined with the violence of his neighborhood, the rise of crack cocaine, the state-sanctioned MOVE bombing, and his parents' abrupt swerve to Christianity in the early 1980s made for a sheltered childhood. Ryan, do you know what the, what the MOVE bombing is? Is that what you're putting your hands up? Like, Okay, okay. So – I, I did not know the state-sanctioned move bombing. I did not know what this is. I'd never heard of it before, which I found kind of surprising because with a lot of the work I've done in like labor reporting, I'm well aware of the ways that the U.S. Air Force used to contract out their bombers to corporations to end strikes. Um, so I wanted to research into the move bombing and see what this was because it clearly impacted some of Questlove's childhood. And to quote from an NPR article titled, why have so many people never heard of the move bombing uh, by Gene Demby? Quote, it seems incredible that so many people had never heard about the time American law enforcement bombed U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, which on top of the deaths left dozens of bystanders, homes destroyed in an uncontrolled fire that the police commissioner told firefighters not to put out right away. The details are so extreme, so over the top. How have we forgotten this? So MOVE is an organization that from my brief research um, was sort of described as a black radical organization, somewhat of a cross between like the Black Panthers um, encouraging like communal style, uh, community living and like animal rights um, kind of stuff. And so uh, the move bombing occurred on the same street that Questlove grew up on. Now, granted, I don't know exactly like how close we're talking like miles distance, um, but what I'm about to describe, this occurred while he was living in West Philadelphia um, on the same street. So the, um, in 1985, the Philadelphia police dropped a bomb on a residential neighborhood that killed 11 people, including five children. Um, from what I can gather, the, the incident begins with like noise complaints um, and making claims of a terrorist threat. Basically, a bunch of reasons for the mayor and the state police um, to get a force together to move these people out of their homes. The, the fire that resulted from the bomb destroyed 61 homes and left over 250 people unhoused. Police also fired more than 10,000 rounds of ammunition during this exchange. And furthermore, uh, the remains of the adults and the children killed in the attack were left in a refrigerated area of the medical examiner's office until literally last year. Um, other than the bones of two children killed in the attack, which had been being used as part of an online forensic anthropology course at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, it's also worth noting that to date, the city has lost lawsuits that total a little under $15 million as a result of this bombing. And this was 1985. You know, this wasn't way back like 1920, 1911, 1800s. This was 1985. This happened in Questlove City on the street that he lived on from and from my understanding at the time that he lived there. This wasn't, you know, like years ahead, something that happened when his parents were growing up and they, you know, adjusted how they raised their kids based on it. This this happened 
in his city, on his street, like while he was living there. <clears throat> and so I just kind of wanted to add that context because that was something I think that jumped out at me in the piece um, and gave me the whole response of like, you know, like, oh, wait, like, what is that? Like, I, you know, go and find out some more details about that. Brandon. I'm processing that. Yeah, yeah. It just got um, as the more I looked into it, it, it just got worse and worse and worse. Like the the detail about the remains of people being killed in the attack and how those were treated, literally up until 2021. I think it just goes to show how you know these extremely traumatic incidents, like the, a state bombing that left 250 people unhoused, right? Like people that if even if you know it wasn't Questlove himself. It was very, very likely people he knew, people in his community, you know, people his parents knew, like the impact on the city, the the dealing with like the refugee situation of that, like 1985. I think something you just said is really interesting. I wonder if people from certain communities, we don't really have to know the people for it to be equally as horrifying and worth documenting. And I think that that's something I think is really interesting about America and how we talk about atrocities. We're horrified when they're on American soil. We're horrified mm. when they're in a neighborhood we've walked through. We're horrified when the person that's talking about it may or may not have known the people involved. But pretty much everywhere else in the world, something of that nature has happened in our lifetimes, in our parents' lifetimes, in our grandparents' lifetimes more than once. And so it feels really interesting that I think by you researching this and sharing it with us, you did exactly what sort of Jasmine talks about in the piece, which is like, how do we introduce these topics that pique interest, that encourage people to go do their own research? It's preservation. Yeah. Move on to the next piece, but Ryan, follow us in your court. Talk to us about Billy Woods. Yeah, so this is uh, from Brooklyn Magazine. It's called Billy Woods Would Rather You Be a Little Uncomfortable, and it's by Ariel Lana Lejard. If I'm pronouncing that wrong, Ariel, if you're listening, you can punch me in the face anytime you want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really glad that the Quest of Peace was right before this because I think they have different approaches when it comes to getting the reader to understand who an artist is. I feel like a lot of us, if we had to explain, if you say, okay, this artist, tell me who they are. I feel like we'd slip into a biography and talk about where they were born, when they were born, their childhood and things like that, where we give the history, what they've done, when their albums were. I love the way this piece begins because it starts off by telling you what Billy Wood is actually like as a person. Like, if I was in a room of Billy Woods, what would he be like? What 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 would his mannerisms be like? What kind of things would he say, you know? And if we're not giving, like, an extensive biography, because there's probably a hundred pieces that do that thing already. So what's the point, you know? Um, what's way more difficult is to describe the essence of a person, what makes them tick and things like that. And I think Ariel captures that really well, just through, that, like, that little opening, uh, that lead as Brandon would say, using the journalism words he taught me. Um, <laughs> uh, 
uh, we get this like little anecdote about um, Billy Woods' feelings towards how eggs should and are cooked. Um, <laughs> and um, I feel like I learned a lot about him just through that more than any other article about him before this, just because it's such a particular minute thing. And I think that's where the essence of a person lies. It's in those tiny little details. And then later on in the piece, we have quotes from Akai Solo and Elucid, both people who have worked in, worked with him um, extensively. And they talk about Billy Woods and what he means to them and how he helps them nurture as artists, which also kind of like strengthens that um, feeling of like, oh, I come out of this piece knowing who Billy Woods is. Like, you leave the piece thinking, yeah, I, 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 knew, I fully know this guy now. And that's the goal of a profile, I feel. Um, so, yeah. I'll leave my intro there. Um, I'll go to Jashma. What do you think of the approach to profiling in this piece compared to the last one? I think in this piece it felt like Ariel was informing me about things I wouldn't have known about Billy Woods by telling me his take on those things instead of, to your point, describing him in biography form, but also through an extremely approachable painting a picture in my head of the two of them sitting somewhere at this diner in Williamsburg talking. And so it felt a lot more like Arielle's describing her brunch with him to me. But within that description, I'm suddenly learning about his views on his artist signed to this label, what he thinks about different releases, how he moves in the world. I want to say it was about Mustafa the poet, but some months ago, a year ago, a piece on the podcast we discussed had a very similar approach to how he kept his shoes on a shoe rack. Um, I could I could be misplacing the piece, but it reminded me of that feeling of like, ah, you're describing to me everything about this person by telling me how they live and how they engaged with me, but not by describing them literally. Um, and this is my favorite little quote from the piece. He's usually meticulous, whether it's his breakfast, the diction in his bars, the release schedule for his independent label, Backwood Studios, or art directing the photos for this article. It's clear that Billy Woods, who has been at this for 20 years now, tends to get what he wants, even if it takes longer than he'd like. A, shout out Ariel for being comfortable saying that Billy art directed the photos for the piece and that he gets what he wants, but such a short line just told us so much about who this person is and the varying ventures they have and how creatively involved he is as an artist. Suddenly I'm intrigued by the fact that he cares deeply about visuals and who's on the roster at the label and all of that just by describing him as meticulous and so great piece yeah yeah you get to understand what's important to him and yeah that's like a really vital thing to know in like profiling someone brandon what do you think uh i think billy woods is wrong about eggs i think that (laughs) Um, over medium eggs is the best way to have your eggs. And other than that, um, I really like, like the comparison to MF doom is, is a pretty strong one. And one of the things I kind of noticed, like that I've even thought about Billy Woods, um, previously, which was why Ryan, I was really excited when you brought this profile is because I constantly saw Billy Woods name popping up on end of the year lists, uh, from specifically from people who are like pretty deep in music journalism, uh, so where where we talk about like MF Doom as your favorite rapper's favorite rapper, um, Billy Woods really seems to kind of embody like your favorite journalist's favorite rapper, right? 
Um, and it was really like, you know, I wanted to get more of that, more of like why that is other than like just listening to the music. I want to hear what, you know, these people have to say about him. I want to hear what these people, um, you know, have learned about him and, and learned about him through his music. And the note about, you know, of, of we, you both talked about how you like the note about the runny eggs, but like one thing, you know, I, I always wonder about is like process too on, on behalf of the writer. And with details like that, you always kind of wonder at what point, you know, was that pulled out, right? Because it's not like you sit down for brunch and like you learn that thing and you're like, holy shit, that's the lead for the piece, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it comes from a process of gathering in all of these details. And then as you learn about a person, you start like associating those details with the things you're learning and you try to find the ones, you know, that most strongly represent those things because they don't all, you know, you don't take all of the details and to lead with something like that, you know, it has to have, it has to do a lot of things. It has to get the reader excited or interested. Um, it has to be strong enough to tie to the character to justify like that's the first sentence, you know, you have to kind of achieve all of those things in order to make that work. And I'm always just curious about process, you know, and, and at what point those kind of realizations come to and where you kind of, kind of pull them from. Yeah. Um, I like what you said about your favorite journalist, favorite rapper. That's really funny. Um, because I think that goes to, to the point you're making about meticulousness and I think us as journalists love that. Um, I think kind of when you're interviewing an artist, you want to you want to know that everything is on purpose, right? Because um, you, you, you find things in the music and you make your own interpretations and it's kind of a deflating, not deflating, it's not the quite the right word, but it can be difficult when you're talking to an artist about the things you pull from their art and they're just like, oh, yeah, that was an accident <laughs> or, you know, something <laughs> like that. Or yeah. um, I think us, we've interviewed a lot of indie artists and people who probably haven't been interviewed a ton in their lives and in their, in their creative lives and aren't used to, you know, the way that an experienced media trained person can spin a story about any aspect of their music or anything that... Um, that, that that's asked to them i've been hit with some yeah man i don't know <laughs> just kind of happened like that and i think the fact that Vidi was is so meticulous and you can listen to his music and say okay there's nothing here that isn't here on purpose you can it, it makes it easier for you as a journalist as someone analyzing this person to go deeper it encourages you to go deeper and to yeah you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Just look for the other layers. Yeah. I, I really like how the piece communicates, like, the mutual respect between him and his fans. And it, it's so wholesome, kind of, in a way, at least compared to the way that we often see fandom play out on social media. Um, there's this specific quote in here where he's like, you know, some of my fans, like, they don't like everything I do, but they very much understand that, like, I'm going to do kind of what what it is that I want to do. I'm going to try new things and I'm going to experiment. And the fans have enough mutual respect to understand that, like, that is a, a trait, a quality, an aspect that they really appreciate in his music. 
And so they understand that like, okay, I didn't like this one. This one wasn't for me. I'm on to the next one. Or, you know, I'm back to the old ones. Like I'm glad as, as someone who has brought me so much music that I enjoy, I am glad that he feels like he has the freedom to not just like cater to what I want. Right. I'm glad that he has the freedom to do his thing and not, you know, feel like he's constantly just working in service to his fans, which I think when we see a lot of like artist fan social media dynamics, you get a lot of that feeling on behalf of the fans, at least for sure. Yeah, I think towards the end of the piece, Ariel outlined some of the sort of nods he's received from other people like Earl Sweatshirt and NPR. And his response to that is something to the effect of, I think it's important not to get complacent and to keep creating and pushing myself. And that's all I can ask for. And I think that that was like, ah, such a like nice way to end such a informative but concise piece. And something I'd like to take away from Ariel when I write in the future is learning about somebody by how they describe other people and Mm. other things and how magical that is to be like, ah, instead of me talking about what this means to you or these varying things you do, why don't you just tell me about how XYZ person or XYZ place or eggs make you feel? (laughs) And inherently through that story that you were telling me, I can tell your story. If no one else has any additional commentary on this piece, I think we should move on to the last, but not the least, my piece, which is also another New York Times article titled, Ice Spice Broke Out With Munch, Rap's New Princess Is Just Warming Up, by the legend, John Caramanica. What did y'all think about this? Because I have a lot of thoughts. And I'm excited about it. It's a very recent piece. It came out on January 20th, 2023. And I'm not going to give you any context, actually. (laughs) I want to know, my dear peers, what was your initial reaction to Munch? Have you heard the song? I've heard bits of it, I think. (laughs) Okay. I'm terrible at listening to music. Everyone knows this. So, (laughs) (laughs) please don't uh, be mad at me. But... Um, yeah, I've, uh, my my contact of Ice Spice's music is pretty much exclusively through social media, like I'm 11 years old. Like, uh, I experienced music through TikTok clips now that I've shared on Twitter because I don't have TikTok. <laughs> I'm getting that secondhand things. But um, everything I know about Ice Spice makes me very endeared to her as a personality. And this piece just kind of strengthened that. Um, yeah, I... I, I really like her as a person i think john caramanca does such a good job of um kind of taking in all the internetiness that's involved in the who i spice is right now because obviously in the current landscape you can't just be an artist you have to be an artist it, no, the artists can't choose who they are. The artists can only do so much, and then social media just kind of does the rest. And sometimes it's out of your control. And I feel like Ice Spice has like become the subject of like a lot of memes, which is acknowledged in the piece. Um, mm-hmm. And I, the thing that kind of endeared me the most was the fact that she's very just kind of calm about that, and she's kind of like I, I got the impression that she's fully in control of all the things that are out of her control which was 
yeah, a really interesting thing to communicate in an article. Yeah, I, I think for me, like, there's a really strong through line in this piece that basically is a really, really long roundabout way of saying that, like, Ice Spice is incredible at branding. Like, uh, I kind of mentioned this a little bit before right. we got on the pod, but, like, her her image, from like, from her image to her sound to her personality, all these things are instantly, like, instantaneously recognizable. Um, and the piece, Monica leads the piece with what is sort of like a physical description. He talks about her... Um, putting on a wig and kind of wrapping it so that she's not identified, but it's not like leading with the obvious, like, Oh, I'm writing about a person. Let me tell you what that person looks like. No, there's a very focused point to that description. And it's to say that like, she, she has to do this because she is so recognizable and her, like her personal identity, her brand identity, and all these things are iconic on a massive, massive level. And I, this is another thing I mentioned before we recorded the pod, but I wanted to talk about sort of how each of these three profiles approach um, like iconography a bit differently. With the Quest Love profile, you have this person who has been around forever and ever and ever and the massive, massive impact they have on it. Um, and people know of them, they know who he is, um, but they even mention how like, that the, the night he was DJing, they don't recognize, like a lot of people don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. Um, even when people recognize him on the street and he'll be like, oh, like name a song, like they don't know a song by him. Um, but yet he's clearly been around for a long time and had this huge impact. And then you have Billy Woods, who is utterly like unrecognizable, has gone through great lengths to kind of like hide his face and things like that. Um, but yet has had such a large growing especially like recently has been growing majorly and it but still remains in this kind of elusive unrecognizable but to the people who know him you know they recognize his imprint and they recognize his impact and then you have ice spice who is i mean safe to say like probably one of the largest artists when it comes to like public attention right now um and has achieved this partially through like very very recognizable iconography and so seeing the way that each of these three profiles have approached three very different cases of icon iconography is, is really interesting. And especially, you know, coming to this last one where that seems to be so much of like the through line of the piece is like how she developed this um, like recognizability. And I really like Mickey probably knows, but uh, I could have looked it up, but I'm really curious to know like who her producers are. Or if she's working with, you know, different producers or like kind of one producer consistently, because even like separated from her visual image and separated from her very like distinct flow and style, like her beats are so like you can hear something like, oh, like that's an Ice Spice beat. Like there's a very kind of specific thing to it that that immediately just brings her to mind and also like wouldn't like seems like it wouldn't work with other MCs who don't like have her specific kind of personality and, and style too. So most of the piece does talk about her producer riot. And so I think that that's really interesting because Karamanica did something in this piece for me that I think 
I want to see a lot more of moving forward, which is young artists are often explained and talked about as though they created something, it went viral on social media, and there wasn't any intentionality, Mm. meticulousness, or story to them. So when you read this piece about Ice Spice and her getting veneers in Bushwick and then going to the Bronx where she grew up and talking about when she had her fake bag, through the piece you also learn about her parents, about her producer, about her producer being the son of DJ Enough in New York City. And as you learn these things, you start to realize that how many times are women and young artists deprived of being positioned as thought leaders or people that put effort into their work purely because the medium on which people engage with them is massive because it's social media. And so Ice Spice talks a lot about how her hair and wearing an Afro in that video and filming in the park that she grew up in was something she thought about, about her sonic influences being beyond wanting to do sexy drill and drill that's native to this neighborhood, but that she's a pop artist. Her producer, Riot, calls her, he's like, she's a pop artist. They just call her a drill artist to limit her. And she wants to make this kind of music and do these kinds of things. And I thought that that was my favorite part of the piece, that suddenly taking this super moment of virality on this song, Munch, and these nods from Drake and everybody suddenly cares about who Ice Spice is. Through that moment of virality, John came in and wrote this entire piece about who are the, who are her parents? Who is her producer? Who is she as a person? What informs her taste? How does she live day to day? And suddenly I left being like, oh shit, Ice Spice is like many iconic artists through whichever era, social media or not extremely intentional and layered and diverse and it took a team of people that have extremely layered and diverse experiences to create an iconic record like this how many artists publicly talk about the fact that she was so proud that the song that made her pop off didn't have any samples she had to clear or wasn't a recreation of something else and there's this really beautiful line in the piece that i'm going to try to find but he talks about um a little bit of It's not a recreation of something that was iconic and how a recreation of something iconic is more of an ode to how great that original song being sampled was, not how great the person using it is. And the fact that she was able to be like, no, I knew that I wanted the song that popped me off to be my song, to be Riot, her producer's song. Right. And I think that that means something. And so I'm curious if both of you learned anything new about Ice Spice from the piece that you probably didn't know before. Yeah, I think the thing that that stood out to me and also speaks to what you were just talking about with like the the intentionality and how a lot of times like especially younger kids when we look at like going viral, a lot of it being brushed off as like, oh, like virality and overlooking like the talent involved in it. And there's a note in here about where Ice Spice um, says that when she's writing, she's sort of thinking of her lyrics as captions, which, you know, speaks to that and works in so many different ways. Like the cleverness to be able to come up with like short punchy bars that fit a rhyme scheme and then also can be taken out of context and used as a caption serves multiple things. It creates like a unique style for your sound, a unique style for your writing. Um, And then it also creates very, very easily like shareable and spreadable virality. And that speaks to, you know, the, the intention behind that. She's not just writing bars like captions because like that, that's how she, her natural kind of writing style. It's 
because there's like a cleverness to it, like to the writing and to kind of fitting your writing to fit that mold. And also to the way that your music can be marketed and knowing like what, who your audience is, how they're targeted and how they, they are sharing music as well. Absolutely. But also an acknowledgement of the era a lot of us half grew up in, right? Songs that used to be statuses in your Yahoo Messenger, AOL, AM Messenger, About Bio, now listening to on MySpace. Those things are the same things as what's happening on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Be Real. And I think I'm like very ready for the music critics of the world to move on from this sort of tone of artists that go viral on social media somehow not having quality artistry or social media being some sort of false representation of something. Why? Mm -hmm. It's the way we engage with music and it's the way we're being exposed to things. If you're Ryan, it's like inception on inception (laughs) of the number of tweets because you don't engage on social media platforms outside of Twitter, whatever the case may be. But I think this piece did a really good job of being able to acknowledge her success without a single inkling of making it seem like she's just some random star that went viral on social media that Drake recognized. And I think that's really important because I think I've heard some version of that story 8,000 times. And that doesn't take away from an artist's quality or their merit. And I found the sentence I was referencing earlier, but he, he basically says, the originality of Munch turned out to be a blessing. A hit reliant upon an older hit can feel contingent, saying less about the new artist than about the durability of the older one. And then he quotes something Ice Spice said. I'm happy the first song that ever really blew up for me like that was an original song with an original word. I'm just so proud of that. And so, because she's viral on social media, I thought I would do a little Google check-in to talk about, as always, how algorithms, the way things are aggregated, are equally as problematic as the systems we live in. But if you Google Munch, you'll find... Everyone do it right now. A fun little exercise. Google Munch. Okay, so the first thing that pops up for me is the Oxford Dictionary's definition of the verb munch, eat something with a continuous and often audible action of the jaws. Immediately next to that is Ice Spice's song. There's a a Norwegian painter named Edvard Munch. I've got the painter. (laughs) Yes, there is. We're going to talk about that in a second. Right? And then all of the dictionary.com searches are what is... What is a munch in New York slang? Where did the term munch come from? What type of word is munch? What is a leg in New York City slang? What is slang for craving? And then the next search result is Urban Dictionary followed by Edward Munch. But then if you click on images, every single image on the first three pages is Edward Munch's The Scream, a very iconic painting, right? But somehow something happens in the image searches of how things are tagged whereby despite her being extremely viral on these platforms and through these mediums, it doesn't translate to Google Images. And that's fascinating because when people reference the song in the word, it does have a very specific visual associated with it. And so I think, you know, I'm intrigued by future pieces like this where we talk about the artist and not, uh, not devalue the... <laughs> not devalue the success they've had based on the medium they have it on. But also just Charlie, our producer, sent a little message in the chat, which is true. Where's the SEO at, y'all? Let's talk about it. 
I need to know. I need to know. Um, but yeah, I thought this was a very interesting piece and well-deserving for an artist that just had a song go have that level of success and still talk about where they grew up, still talk about the intentionality. And Karamanica is a legendary writer. So I really enjoyed this piece. Yeah. Yeah. Learning more about like the intentionality was really, really my favorite part of the piece, I think. Yeah. And I love that we've, we're talking about, because something that I've noticed recently is that, no, not recently, but it's been true forever that the media just hates young people. <laughs> and whenever young people find success, like Jashima said, there's a campaign to discredit it for whatever reason imaginable, right? Oh, it's it. she went viral on TikTok or on social media. Nah, it's just a fad or whatever, right? Um, like, but whenever there is a new medium introduced that young people use to express themselves and are able to kind of, are given the tools to, yeah, create art there's always like ah it doesn't count because you didn't do it the hard way and it's like that that uh exact line (laughs) pervades through so many things think about like student debt all this kind of stuff you know like and yeah like you said Jashima I hope we can get more pieces like this where young people are just taken seriously like because it sucks it sucks like we shouldn't be discrediting people who can create art that people love that people can create art of different tools like that should be a really wonderful thing and uh yeah that's why I, re- I really appreciate the angle that Karen Manica took with this that it's a more wholesome one rather than a one that looks to discredit Absolutely. And I think it's cool for people between their 20s and 30s to have artists that can create art with their version of nostalgia without it needing to be continuously about a very, very different era to the tune of they said they went shopping in Elizabeth, New Jersey for true religion jeans. And your girl wanted true religion jeans her whole life. But my immigrant parents were definitely like, no, you are not getting 65, $125 (laughs) jeans. And so this is actually just my pitch to John and Ice Spice that I would like to be a music video extra in your music video that's about the 2010s fashion because I never got to wear true religions and I feel like that's unfair. Call her up. <laughs> Charlie, just, this, is, this is a great way to end the piece. Charlie just said it's the Blackberry curve for me, the phone he never got, it sounds like. But gentlemen, what is one item from that era of time that you wish you had or really enjoyed using. Oh man, things I I, I didn't ask for much as a kid. Um, yeah, but I re I, I never grew up with uh, uh, I missed out on the Nintendo Wii era. Um, the first console I bought as an adult was a Wii because I wanted to go back and experience all the things my friends had. <laughs> I wanted to play Mario Galaxy because I was jealous that I could only play it for five minutes at my cousin's house. Ryan, do you need a hug? Not anymore, because I have a Wii. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For me, it was that I spent all my allowance um, on overdue library book fees, so I couldn't buy blank CDs from Circuit City in New York to then go burn music. And then... And then it would probably be that I got Tamagotchis very late in life after the trend was over. Mm. So I was just the corny older kid that shouldn't have been playing with them anymore. But, uh, you know, you know, 
Brandon, do you have a do I'm, you have a two thousands? I'm trying to think. Relic? My childhood is a blur right now. Uh, there was always just like a Hot Wheels thing that I really wanted that could like launch the cars like out of a. Oh, that was sick. Yeah. Like you'd shoot them up a ramp. I never got that. <laughs> oh, Charlie Charlie for the bonus. Yes. Every time yeah, we'd go to like any technology store and like any game store and seeing those things on the shelves, it was always so intriguing. Like, yeah, yeah, barnacles. There was, for some reason, this book that was on like Reading Rainbow that was about the 50 states like breaking up, like the 50 states of the United States like breaking up and like moving away from each other that I asked the library if they had it in stock like once a week for like two years and I never read that book. So I guess if anyone out there, if you have an extra copy of the <laughs> the book about the 50 states breaking up, you can resolve a little of my childhood trauma. <laughs> a dissertation by Brandon Hoopla Hill, The American Pangea, The Separation of the 50 States. And on that note, thank you for tuning in to this episode of In Search of Sauce. Thank you to my co-host for joining us. As you know, engage with the podcast on all podcast listening platforms. Tweeted us. Tell us what you're listening to. If you're an independent artist that would like to be covered, please submit to us. And if you're a music journalist that's writing, send us your pieces. We want to read them. You can connect with all of us on Twitter because Ryan doesn't exist anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And if anyone has Bionicles, please slide into Charlie's DMs. And also you can now leave star ratings on Spotify. So do that. Yeah, in, increase our SEO. Reference Central Sauce everywhere that you write. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. This episode of Search of Source featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill, and Jashma Wadera of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Turner, the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Barsity. Thanks to your music for the bit to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth End Podcast Network production. Thanks to Barsity, Chill. Music, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covering the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for the source.